Do you ever wonder why we do the things that we do? Most mornings, my routine looks exactly the same. I walk downstairs, I take some vitamins, I make a cup of coffee, I sit on my couch, and I start to wake up. It's almost always in the exact same, pretty much mindless order. Why do we tend to sit in the same places at church or at work gatherings or at our dinner table when, if you remember back to when you were a kid, we hated being assigned seats. There was nothing that we liked more less than having assigned seats. Maybe other than the fake hamburgers that we used to talk about when we were kids that people pay a whole lot of money for, a whole lot of money for now. I'll never forget. I'll never forget watching my dad's hands when he drove. That might sound really weird, but I paid really close attention to every single movement. I paid attention when he used the turn signal or his foot placement on the accelerator or when it shifted over to the brake. But most importantly, those tiny little movements of his hands. I thought that was a huge part of driving. Making sure to keep the uh, steering wheel moving slightly the entire time you were driving, it seemed like that was really key to the whole thing. Truthfully, it wasn't until I started driving myself that I recognized that those little movements of the hand were all about subtle course corrections that my dad was making when he was driving so that he wouldn't veer into another lane or into the ditch. I had been focused on these small details without really understanding the point. It's easy to get lost in the trees when there's a huge forest waiting to be explored. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about what it looks like for us to seek first. We've talked about what that looks like in our personal lives with God. We've talked about what it looks like as a united church. And we've talked about what that looks like in terms of our relationship with the world around us. My name is Neil, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Edge Church. And I am so glad that you're with us today. Today, we're going to talk about and we're going to be about the subject of communion. To me, it's one of the easiest things to turn into a ritual that honestly has very little meaning and no real connection, which is really strange when you think about what communion actually is. Some of you grew up in different kinds of churches and you took part in a ceremony um, that, that was like communion. You might have called it something different like the Eucharist which really just means to give thanks. You might have grown up in a church where they called it the Lord's Supper, or uh, like we do here at the Edge, we just refer to it as communion. And the word communion comes from the Greek word koinonia, and that just means a participation together. And when we participate in communion, we do it in a variety of ways here at the Edge. It is such a significant moment, and we never want it to become commonplace to you. The challenge for us in anything that's important is to make sure that we're still connecting our hearts to the true meaning of what it is. Or maybe it's to reconnect with it. Because just like with so many things in life, we go on autopilot and then we don't experience that level of connection to these things that we say are so important to us. So today, we're going to focus on the origin of this spiritual practice. And we're going to ask God to ignite a passion in us about it so that we always know that when we take communion, we are seeking God first. 
We want to do what scripture says and participate in the sufferings of Jesus for the sins of the whole world. The origin goes all the way back to the Old Testament book of Exodus. Why are we going all the way back to the Old Testament for this New Testament practice? Because I'm confident that when we connect all the dots today, it's going to change how you look at communion forever, or at least until you need to be reminded again. If you recall in the book of Genesis, if you have some familiarity with scripture, God called this pagan, idol-worshiping man named Abram. He became Abraham. He called him out of obscurity, and he, he decided that through Abram, he was going to bless the entire world. He would bless all people through this man. Now, Abram's family had a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. And one of those times was um, in the family line after the death of Joseph, the brother who was sold into slavery by his brothers, only to be elevated by God to be second in charge of all of Egypt. Well, after Joseph died, the Jewish people were taken into slavery until God used Moses to set them free. But the freedom journey was quite the process. And it looked like God punishing the Egyptians who were doing wrong by holding the, 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 the Jews in slavery. He punished them with 10 different plagues. And the last one was an event called the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 28, we get this quick account of the story of Passover. It says this, Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel, and he said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, and he will pass over your houses. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Listen, there is so much symbolism going on here in this passage. Um, throughout most of the Bible, when you hear Egypt, it's not just a place that is being discussed. It actually often represents slavery and it represents sin. And throughout the 400 years of the, the Israelites' captivity, they wanted freedom. And then it finally came through the obedience of this incredibly insecure leader named Moses, and obviously by the divine intervention of God himself. I want you to notice what they actually did. It's fascinating. It says, each family took a lamb and they killed it. And from the body of that lamb, they dipped this plant called hyssop into the blood of the lamb. And then they painted the doorways of each of their houses. And we're told that when God went through the land of Egypt that night, when he saw the mark of the blood on each doorframe of the homes of the Israelites, he passed over them. But he killed every firstborn of every family in Egypt, including the kings. 
the people were told to celebrate this each year so that they would always remember what God had done for them. Let's fast forward now a thousand years. Now that's a whole lot of time to jump, but it's significant. All the way until the very last night of the, uh, the life of Jesus on earth, right in the New Testament. And it just happened to be the night of the commemoration of Passover, which was instituted a thousand years earlier. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 1 through 20. It says, Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house. The teacher asked, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and they found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Let's make the connection. In one moment, a thousand years apart, Jesus brought to a close the original celebration of Passover and he let the world know that a new and complete way had come. In the past, the death of a, of a lamb could bring temporary relief to the guilt of sin, but it took the death of the one that John the Baptist called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. It took that lamb to put an end to the sacrificial system, this endless supply of animals being sacrificed for the, the guilt of the sins of the people, and it had to be done all of the time. And then that's exactly why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. So when we receive communion, we are in agreement with Jesus, with all that he did on the cross. And we confidently say that what God started with the original Passover, he completed through the mighty cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the hope that the scriptures speak to. And he is the completion of Passover. So the origin of communion 
It's found in the Old Testament with the celebration of Passover, but the completion of it comes through Jesus Christ because when his blood was shed, it was enough for the forgiveness of all sin once and for all. So communion, it's a serious time of remembrance because it is the sacrifice of Jesus that sets us free from sin and ultimately from eternal death. It's also a serious time for us to make sure that we're in right relationship with the people around us and with God. That's what Paul was talking about when he, he talked to the church at Corinth about the subject of communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 32, this is what Paul said. He said, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. That's a harsh start, isn't it? He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not for this matter, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. In other words, communion is for those who have committed themselves to Jesus. Not just that, it's for those who also are acting as caring members of the body of Christ. What does that mean? It means that you are seeking to be in right relationship and right caring and loving relationship with members of God's family, which is the church. I want you to take just a minute and gather your communion supplies. If you don't have juice and bread, that's okay. Take something else in its place. It's not the form that matters. It's whether your heart is truly seeking to be connected, to have communion with God first. As we prepare to receive communion, I want you to connect with this um, reality. In the first century Jewish wedding ceremonies, the first step involved a son who would leave his father's home. And then he would head to the family of his prospective bride. And then he would pay a price for her. Now, just to be clear, it was still her choice to say yes. 
But if her family received the, the money for her and she agreed, then a formal ceremony would take place. It would take place. And in that ceremony, the rabbi would bless a cup of wine and then he would give it to the groom. The groom would drink from the cup and then the groom would offer the cup to his bride. And if she drank it, they were married. Interestingly enough, after the bride, after they both drank from the cup, the groom would leave gifts for his bride. And then he would leave and he would go back to his father's house to prepare a place for he and his new bride to live as husband and wife. And then he would come back at a time determined by his father to get his bride and take her to their permanent home. When we receive communion, we are saying yes to something that is similar to a marriage commitment to Jesus. And while we don't see him now, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the promise that we will receive all that God has promised. Everything that he promised that he would start, he has completed. One day, Jesus will return and he will bring us to that permanent home that he has made for us, where we will be in perfect communion with Jesus Christ. If you aren't in relationship with Jesus, I want to make sure that you know how to be. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 tells us exactly how. And it says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Today, we're just going to pray into communion. Um, God, we say yes to you. We say yes. We thank you for your body, which was broken for us, and we thank you for your blood that was shed for us. We thank you that this was your idea from the very beginning that you weave the truth of your story in all the way from a thousand years before Jesus came to this earth. May we never forget the why of this sacred moment and may we always put you first. So wherever you are today, if you're in house churches or if you're just by yourself or you're gathering somewhere else with someone this week, just take the bread and break it and just give thanks for the body of Jesus that he willingly sacrificed for you. After you do that, give thanks for his blood, which he shed for you. In just a minute, we're going to continue in worship while you participate in communion. I ask you just to connect your heart to what Jesus did for you on the cross. He did it with great joy. Scripture says that for the joy set before him, he willingly sacrificed himself because he wanted to be with you in eternity one day. Remember, if you don't have bread and you don't have juice, that's quite all right. Food isn't the point. The point is to be with Jesus. Let's worship, and I'll come back in just a few minutes to close.
We love to leave you with questions to consider in your house churches or wherever you're gathering this week. The first one is this. Just like I missed out on the why behind the things my dad did when he was driving, we can do that in church too. What have you made an autopilot experience with God or in your church experience? And what are you going to do to make it more personal again? The second question is really a challenge. Reread the original Passover story and the story of the Last Supper and ask God to open the eyes of your heart in a new way about his love and pursuit of you. Finally, people connect with God in all different ways. This week, be intentional about doing one thing that connects you the most to him. Please share with everybody what you'll be doing. God bless you all, and we'll see you next week.